1 Kings chapter 3, uh, starting at verse 3. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which is actually very, very difficult for me. My entire Christian life since the age of 20 has been through the NIV. So the language kind of trips me up a little bit. So if I trip up while reading, I apologize. Um, 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, Because you have asked for this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Um, interesting thing to note as you're reading this, Solomon, as he says in here, is a, a young boy. He calls himself a little child. Interesting thing is that it's believed that Solomon only lived 52 years, which is not a long life. So you read that last verse there. It says, if you walk in my way, keeping my statutes and my commands, and as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Uh, We know the life of Solomon, correct? Most of us. Um, He died at a young age because he he struggled. Uh, And God had said, not that if you struggle, you're going to die at a young age, but God had said, if you follow my statutes, you will have a long life. But we look at the life of Solomon, and uh, it was not a clean and pristine record. And the difficult thing when I was prepping for this sermon is Solomon's heart is in the right place at this moment and time. But we have the knowledge of his life. It's recorded for everybody to see. It's laid out there. And his life was not, like I said, a pristine, perfect record. I think he was a go-go dancer at one time. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Carol, for that. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, (laughs) sorry, Carol. What what do we know? (laughs) What do we know, though, about Solomon, uh, about his life beyond, beyond this? What are some of the things? 
good and bad. A lot of women. Yes, seven, it says, uh, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines? A thousand, and I'm guessing that's a rounded number. Uh, I was a youth pastor prior to being at Calvary, and at the church that I went to, I would, I would preach there as well on Sunday morning, um, preached a number of times. And about, I would say, on like a really good Sunday back then, maybe 1,300 people would show up. And so I thought to myself, and it sat, I think, about 900 so I thought to myself, okay, as I'm studying this, think about a thousand women sitting in that auditorium, 700 of my wives and 300 of my, that's a lot of women. I have enough trouble with one, right guys? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Just kidding. It was, it was totally a joke because that's not true. She has enough trouble with me as you can already tell and I've only been speaking for five minutes, but that's, that's just crazy. It's crazy. Um, and then what are some other things that you might know? You're not leaving because I talked about women that way, are you, right? Okay. <laughs> no. <Good. laughs> Bye. <laughs> uh, what else do you know about Solomon? Worshipped other gods. And a lot of that was because of um, the wives and concubines pulled him away to worship false gods. Um, we know from Ecclesiastes 2.10 that he denied himself no pleasure. So you got to ask yourself, and I was reading commentaries that were saying, God does not give blank checks to those that aren't trustworthy. And that Solomon's heart was in the right place, and, and God knew that he could then give him wealth and honor. And so I'm, I'm reading this, but it's just not matching up, because God knows the future. God knows that if I give this man wealth and I give this man honor, this is what he's going to do with it. God knew that when he gave it to Solomon. So I got to ask myself the question, why? And I don't think we truly will know the answer on why God gave him something that ultimately hurt him. But when you read through Ecclesiastes, and it's actually one of my favorite books, it always puts me in my place when I think that life is going well, or um, even when life's not going well, it just puts me in my place to realize that all of this external um, in the end is, is meaningless and God is the only thing that we need. But we find in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, which is the second to last verse of Ecclesiastes, and this was written by Solomon, he writes this. So he has everything, all wisdom, all wealth, all honor, and he says this at the end of Ecclesiastes after saying meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So I look back and I see the life of Solomon and I ask why the Lord allowed him to have wealth and honor, knowing what it would do. And I have to look back and think it's set as an example for us so that we don't get led astray by this world. He had more wisdom, it says, than anybody before, anybody at that time, and anybody to come. So basically, if we believe the word of God is truth, Solomon was the wisest person to ever walk the face of the earth. And he had wealth and honor. It says more than the kings of that day, but you've got to imagine probably more in comparison than anybody the world has known. All of this Solomon had. Everything was at his fingertips. And at the end, he said, I've had it all. I've denied myself no pleasure. And in the end, it's meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What a great analogy. He says, the only thing that matters is fear God 
and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. And now we're small scale compared to a lot of people in this world. But we can look at this example and say, you know what? Those things we're chasing after, in the end, they're meaningless. Love God and love people. That's what matters. And I've maybe shared this example with you, but I've shared it in in past sermons with other people. There's an interview, a famous interview with Tom Brady a few years back, and they asked him what was his favorite Super Bowl ring. Do you remember his answer? The next one. Now, in light of the recent Super Bowl, he probably would still answer the same uh, if he was asked that question again. But it was the next one. Here's a guy at Worldly Standards who has everything, and he says, the next one. I'm chasing after something else. And he said in that interview, there's still just something missing. Rockefeller was asked, how much is enough? His response was, another, a little more, or I've, I've heard it said, a, another million. He had everything, yet it just wasn't enough. So that's a little side note to this passage, um, because it's kind of hard to read chapter 3, 3 through 14, and not filter it through what we know about Solomon. But what I want you to try to do this morning as I do teach through chapter 3, 3 through 14, is kind of put aside what we know about his future and just think about him in this present moment. And what is God teaching us through it? So 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 4 says this, Solomon loved the Lord, he walked in his statutes, and he offered burnt offerings. He had a right heart at this moment before God. And what happens with his right heart before God? He drew near to God, he followed after God, and God drew near to him. And it says that God responded, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, and it says that Gibeon, the Lord, appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Of course, ESV is sometimes confusing, so the NIV um, says this as well, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Consider the wide possibilities of this divine offer. So it's debated on Solomon's exact age, but most people say he was somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Anybody in here have a kid or have had a kid in that age range, 12 to 14? You, you had, I was 12 to 14 at one point, right? Most of us have, and some, some do right now. Now imagine God coming to your 12-year-old and saying, what do you want? Whatever it is, I'll give it to you. What do you think they would respond with? Stuff? Somebody in first service said Disneyland. And I was like, what, to, to own it or just to go? Because this is anything you want. What else do you think they would ask for? I tried to reach out to Josh Bitework to see what his kid would say, but he never texted me back. So I would have loved to hear what uh, Noah had to say. (laughs) But think about this divine offer. The God of the universe that holds everything in his hands is coming to Solomon, a little boy, and saying, ask whatever you want, and I will grant your request. And he responds by talking about his father, David, and how he walked. And then he says, and Lord, I have this great people before me, but I am just a little child. Give me wisdom. He asks for a discerning heart to lead well. He gives a spiritual request, a 12-year-old, 
saying, God, I see these people. What maturity. I see these people before me. And my father David led well. This is a great multitude. It's the promise of Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore. And Solomon is seeing this come to be, and he says, I don't know. I'm just a kid. I don't know how to lead them. Help me. If I was 12, I would say, you know, have them bow down to my every request. You know, build my kingdom even larger. Have me come. This is God that he's talking to. Most 12-year-olds, I would think, and even me at 34, would be selfish in their request. But Solomon gives a spiritual request. And what it does is it reflects where his heart is at. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When our delight is in the Lord, what begins to happen is our desires fall in line with his desires. And so then what happens is we ask in accordance with what God wants, and our requests are granted. The Bible is filled with Jesus saying and writers saying, that if you ask, it will be given. And so we got to ask ourselves sometimes, well, sometimes I ask and it's not given. And if I read scripture and to be honest with myself, sometimes I'm not asking with the right heart and the right motive. But when our delight is in the Lord, our desires start to go in line with his desires and we ask and he responds. He's asking for something spiritual, not something temporal. So digging into the text, I I ask myself, why is a 12-year-old at this point with such a right heart before God? And I think the text gives us a few clues on why Solomon was in such a good spot. So wise at such a young age already, even before God granted all of the wisdom that he had. One reason, I think, is because of the example of his father, David. So Solomon says when talking to God, David was faithful, righteous, and upright. So as a little kid, he looks at his dad and has admiration for his desire for the Lord, and that had an impact on him. But again, digging in the text and knowing the history of things, why is Solomon alive? What what brought him to this earth? What did his dad do? Adultery and, and murder. He's... This is why he's on earth. Imagine me telling my son, <laughs> Oliver, well, yeah, I killed mommy's old husband and then had adultery with her, and that's why you're here. Do you think he would look up to me? you like, what did you do? <laughs> but Solomon looked at his father and said <laughs> he was faithful, righteous, and upright. Yet he is the product of murder and adultery. And you got to ask yourself the question, so why is he able to look at David in this way when his father did such terrible things? And I believe it's because David knew that, the, that God was Lord and God was judge. But he also knew that God was patient. He also knew that God was slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful, full of grace and mercy. David knew the Lord so intimately that he could commit this horrendous act, two horrendous acts, and yet pick himself back up and continue to walk with the Lord. Yes, God is Lord and God is judge, but at the same time, he is gracious, patient, loving father. 
what he was able to do is, you know, like Philippians talks about, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, he pressed on. And I think some of us, oftentimes, we look at this walk with the Lord as a sprint rather than a marathon. Think about it. If you're doing a 100-yard dash and you trip at the onset, are you going to win? No. Even if you just hesitate at the gun, you're probably not going to win. And we look at it and think, oh, I tripped up yesterday or I tripped up last week. And those things hang with us and it hinders us from pressing on toward the goal. But this is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Twelve years after that happened, David was still walking with the Lord and not looking at what was in the past, but looking what was in the present. And it impacted his family. And so we see Solomon the way he is in this moment. Hebrews says this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Lay aside every weight and every sin. Our sin just clings so close to us. And a lot of people, who knows what your past is? Who knows what you've done? But a lot of people will look at us through the filter of things we've done in the past. So look at us in this present moment, no matter what the circumstance, but they're filtering it through everything that has come before. And so their judgment of us isn't right. At the same time, I think we sometimes have trouble forgiving ourselves for things that we've done to family members, to loved ones, to a spouse, to friends at work. And so we let these things just cling so close and weigh us down. And we say statements like, I am, or I will never get over, or I will always be. And other people then are affirming that stuff and saying, you will always be, you are. And these opinions and these sins and the struggle define our very being. But God does not look at us through a filter of our past sin. He looks at us through a filter of the cross. And it's full of grace and it's full of forgiveness. It's abounding in love. And sometimes I feel that when you preach too much on grace and you lean too heavily on that, you think, well, then people are going to take advantage of that grace. Like Romans 6 talks about. What shall we say then? Go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means we die to sin. How can we live it any longer? So you got to pound the pulpit and you got to say, this is wrong, this is wrong. Grace gives too much freedom. But when I look through the scriptures, yes, God is judge, but he is gracious God way, way more, and patient God way, way more. Just think about how much he prolonged judgment in stories in the Old Testament. Slow to anger, abounding in love. And I think David saw God that way. And he knew that even though he committed this act, he could get up and he could keep going. And we see that impact in the life of Solomon. Romans 7 says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And I think we stop there. Say, oh, I want to do good, but then I do bad. I want to do good, then I do bad. I know what the law of God says, but then there's this war waging in within me. What shall I do? And Paul gives us the hope and says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ 
Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the life of David. And Solomon saw that. So he could say those words and they were true. That David was faithful, upright. Another thing is uh, Solomon had the right heart. A heart of humility. Saying, I can't do this. I'm just a little child. So this is his first day in office, technically. This is his inauguration. And God comes before him. What would you do? You watched the Republican debate. The question was asked, what would you do in your first day of office? Oh, I would, no, 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 no. And all, you know, this sort of stuff. That's how they talk, right? That's at least some of them. Um, They're like, this is what I would do. If you were president of the United States, what would you do your first day in office? If you were king or dictator and had complete rule, what would you do that first day? Solomon, his very first day, says, I can't do it. I need the Lord. That was his response. And when we realize the weight of our responsibility, like Solomon did, and our insufficiency to complete it, that's when we're in the right place to hear from God and be led by God. Carrie and I often will look at our kids and say, we're messing them up. I'll look at her and say, I'm messing her up. And she'll look at me and say, she's messing me up. And we're just so full of sin and insufficiency. And we, you know, aren't showing continual grace and forgiveness and patience. We're yelling at our kids not to yell sometimes. You ever find yourself doing that? Stop yelling. Wait. That, that doesn't work. Whether it, it could be at work. You know, as a wedding photographer, I have 48 weddings this year. And Corey, who works for me now as well, he has 16. So we have a combined 64. And we're depending on technology and um, our skill set to document what is one of the most important days of somebody's life. I photographed probably 225 weddings, and I still get extremely nervous and butterflies before every single one because I think to myself, there's no redo. There was one guy who was a contractor reading through my contract. He owned his own business. And in there, there's the limit of liability saying that if anything happens to these images, I can only be sued for the amount of the wedding, the the cost that they um, had paid me, and that's it. And so he comes to me and says, well, I don't like that. I want you to take it out. If I mess up a job, I do everything I can to make it right. And my response to him was, if I mess up at the job, I, ca- I can't do it. It's, it's once. It's over. I can't read. There's no redo. There's no go and fix it. Like, oh, this pipe was wrong and it's leaking. Okay, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll fix it. It's like, no, my camera died and, you know, or my, I almost couldn't shoot a wedding because of my back a few weeks ago. My mom had to drive me around from spot to spot as I just like hobbled and they were like, you're looking a little tender. (laughs) It's like, yeah, a little bit. There's no redo. The weight of responsibility within your family at your job. When you have an overwhelming amount of confidence in yourself, you are in the worst spot you can possibly be. Because our strength is weakness in God's economy. 
but our weakness is strength. And when we get to the point where Solomon was, and I believe David set the example of saying, I cannot do this. I need you. Then God shows up and he does his work. It's amazing. So the example of David and his humility put his heart in the right place that he was able to make a spiritual rather than temporal request. So I got to challenge us this morning. What do we ask for from God? Are we seeking what God offers or are we seeking God himself? My prayer recently as I've been reading through this, and this is why I said in the beginning, if you get nothing out of this, that's okay because what God has taught me is just been phenomenal this week. And as I'm reading through this, I'm realizing that so many of my requests, and they're good requests and God wants us to give them, but so many of them are temporal and selfish. It's not often that I ask God just for more of him. And so this week, I've been, my prayer has been all week, God, give me a heart that seeks after you over and over and over. And he's been answering. 6.45 a.m., Friday morning. Usually, that's for you, you're like, oh, yeah, I've already been working three hours. But for me, that's, I'm still usually sleeping. Eight o'clock is when the kids come in. 6.45 rolls around this past Friday. And God says, get up. I was studying Thursday night before I went to bed this sermon. And God's like, get up. And I'm like, ah. And this always happens. This is, I'm not really having a conversation with God. It's just, it's, but it was crystal clear in my head. Like, oh, I'll just wait till, I'll wait till later. Sleep's more important right now. And God, God goes, your noisy kids will be up later. Get up. I met Solomon in the quiet of the night. It's the quiet of the morning. Get up. And I thought to myself, oh, but I have a wedding today. I shot a wedding on Friday and Saturday. It's like, oh, I have a wedding today. I need my energy. Seek me, and all of these things will be added unto you. Get up. I'll give you energy. Oh, but every time I get up, I fall asleep. I, and I will. I'll go down, and I'll read the Bible on the couch, laying down. <laughs> Smart. But I'm like, oh, every time I do that, I go to sleep. He's like, well, then make yourself some coffee. Get up. Every single excuse, like automatically another thought came into my head, just knocking it down. So I got up. And I had sweet, sweet time with the Lord. I was really tired during that wedding, but I got through it with so much joy, and it, it just it flew by. The last song came, and I was like, wow, it's over. Can't believe it. So I go home. I go to bed, 12.30 a.m., so now Saturday morning, 6.45. Saturday morning, get up. I'm like, oh. But that time it was easier. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm really tired. But I will get up because, God, you, you showed up yesterday. And I got up, and the wedding yesterday was great. 91 degrees. The Hill School, they have no air conditioning in their chapel. I don't know what they're thinking. But it was hot. But he got me through it. This morning, 5.45 a.m., get up. Wait, no, that's not God. It's 5.45. He's not up yet. 6.45. So I go back to sleep. 6 o'clock, get up. 6.15, get up. 6.30, get up. And then I was like, I was fine. God, he was like my snooze. I wasn't even pressing snooze, but every 10 minutes he was waking me up. 
Finally, at 6.45, I'm like, okay. But I'm thinking in my head, I have a sermon. I got to preach. I just did two weddings, and I have a sermon to preach, and we've had a long week. But he's just like, get up. Luke 12.31 says, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. If you're anything like me, I am the king of excuses on why I don't seek after the Lord. The king of excuses. I can have my Bible on my phone and listen to it, which is great. But I say to myself, oh, I'll just get my Bible time while I'm making breakfast or while I'm driving. God is saying, no, just meet with me in that quiet place. Stop putting the excuses out. Seek after me with all of your heart. And so I've been having that prayer, and he's been opening up the door, and it's my duty to walk through and say, God, you're getting me up. I will get up, and I will thank you. It is amazing. I've been praying that prayer this week, and he opens a door. It's like, seek after me. I will give all of these other things if you just seek after me. Where are we at? I know for me, and I hope, my, my prayer now is usually what happens, just to be completely honest, is I do really good with applying this stuff all the way up until the last sermon is preached. And then it's like studying for a test for me sometimes. So I, I am being convicted and hammered with this is what I need to do. I need to seek him with all of my heart and everything else will fall into place. And my prayer is Monday morning, let that still be true. Not because I need to share it with somebody, but because it's what I learned to be true. Where are we? What are our excuses for not following after God? And then the response is just what God does. He says, okay, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.20. So we ask for God to do something, and he gives us even more. And that ask or imagine is so true. It's not what we could imagine. His ways are not our ways. I could have not imagined my back being out for five weeks in the middle of wedding season and Carrie having two surgeries in three weeks and all and me being on the schedule to preach this month and all of the things that are going on. I wouldn't have asked for that. But my desire to seek after God is showing me that's exactly, hopefully you can confirm you're the one with the... <laughs> hurt neck, but um, God has answered in abundant ways to give us more peace, more joy, more comfort, the grace and the gratitude that we have because of what this church has extended to us is overwhelming. More than we can ask or imagine, but we get scared because we think we're in control and what we want is best. We might not verbalize it, but our actions, that's what happens. I know what's best, and what God wants kind of scares me. But when we seek after him and he starts to answer, man, watch out. Because what he has for us is so much greater than we could imagine. What's your prayer today? And I want to challenge us as a church this week. Catch yourself in your prayer time and ask yourself, what am I looking for, what God has to offer or God himself? And when we become a church more and more that just seeks after God to be with God, man, what Tim talked about prior to sabbatical, about amazing things happening in our midst, what Jay talked about last week, that's going to start to happen because we'll be a people after God. And when churches become a people after God, nothing 
can get in their way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the examples of Scripture. Thank you that we see Solomon with such a humble, pure, godly request. Lord, and for me, um, that's what I want. Lord, I really do. I have been walking with you for 13, 14 years. Lord, but I feel like it's just up and down and up and down. And I look at some of those around me, especially Tim. Lord, their family has struggles and you know things don't go their way all the time. Lord, but there's a guy that every single day man, is just passionately following after you. And I see that and I want it. Lord, and I know some people in this room, they are living that way. Lord, because they're finding that what you have to offer is so much greater than anything that they can do. Lord, so if they're on three hours of sleep, they would much rather wake up and spend an hour with you than get four hours of sleep because they know that you can give so much more than another hour of sleep. Whatever it may be, Lord, I pray that we will be a people that seeks after you primarily, not because of what you can give, but just because of who you are. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is my prayer this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen.